Jay Mariotti here, live from Los Angeles, but just a sneeze or spittle attack from death. As we continue our sinister venture into the toxic unknown, I would love to lob random assurances about surviving this vile ghost, such as a promising drug combination reportedly being developed in the Kansas City area. But with no meaningful progress on testing, it's far too late for shallow hope. With New York City living a real-life horror movie and deadly hotspots emerging across America. A crisis created many weeks ago, remember, when this country's leadership squandered an opportunity to contain the coronavirus spread. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention offered the Trump administration a diagnostic plan of aggressive screening, and the answer at the time was, nope. At least President Trump finally is listening to pleas from public health experts, governors, and the 800,000 U.S. physicians who urged him to extend social distancing practices indefinitely, now saying that the guidelines will last until April the 30th and ending Trump's wish to reopen businesses by Easter, which would have been tantamount to a death wish and a dereliction of presidential duty. This means stay at home, don't gather in groups of more than 10 until the end of April. You got it, kids? Probably not. That said, I'm not here to be Dr. Feelgood and explain how I'm learning to make espresso. My columns and commentaries never have been a place for the warm and fuzzy, for Pollyanna's cheerleaders or blind optimists. And that tone is not going to change here as we soldier through the most dire public health crisis of our lives. Try as I do to stay patient and positive, I cannot be foolish when the death toll and hospital chaos intensifies while a highly contagious virus continues to wreak national and global havoc. All of which has led Dr. Anthony Fauci, the government's most credible voice on infectious diseases and an emerging rock star in this country, to say the U.S. will see between, ready, 100,000 and 200,000 coronavirus deaths among millions infected in this country. Millions! Here was Fauci on CNN reminding us that we're far, far away from the peak of the outbreak in the United States. So it's difficult to present. I mean, looking at what we're seeing now, you know, I would say between 100 and 200,000 cases, but I don't want to be held to that because it's, it's, it's excuse me, deaths. I mean, we're going to have millions of cases, but I I just don't think that we really need to make a projection when it's such a moving target that you can so easily be wrong and mislead people. What we do know, Jake, is that we got a serious Mm -hmm. problem in New York. We have a serious problem in New Orleans, and we're going to be developing serious problems in other areas. Face it, until we figure out how to suppress the virus, it's going to remain with us like the devil itself. Even if it calms down in, say, August, COVID-19 is likely to be seasonal, and it could return in the fall. So here's the raw real. The raw real. That's what we do here. The life we've known in America is not coming back. Not coming back for a very long time, folks, if ever. The pandemic will change this world permanently and drastically, And when Trump protests otherwise, just know where his head is right now. In a fearful, isolated nation, Trump used 
Twitter to rave about the TV ratings of his daily press briefings, actually writing that his average viewership of 8.5 million compares to a season finale of The Bachelor. The Bachelor amid a coronavirus. Wrote Trump, quote, because the ratings of my news conferences, etc., are so high, Bachelor finale, Monday Night Football type numbers, according to the New York Times, the lamestream media is going crazy. Trump is reaching too many people. We must stop him, said one lunatic. See you at 5 o'clock p.m., end quote, Trump. I actually laughed upon reading his tweet, realizing Trump is bringing us comedic humor in these dark times. Unfortunately, that is not part of the job description. Trump continues to insist everything will be fine without any basis for saying so. He has left the Newt Rockney speech to a Democrat who conceivably could be his opponent in November or whenever. New York governor and emerging power voice Andrew Cuomo, who declared this to members of the National Guard. So I say, my friends, that we go out there today and we kick coronavirus ass. That's what I say. The reality is coronavirus is kicking our ass and will continue to kick our ass until further notice. This is the Pandemic Proof Podcast with Jay Mariotti, an actual journalist who covered the Bay Area earthquake long after a World Series was postponed and on 9-11 successfully demanded to keep hosting his national radio show when an advertising boss wanted to switch to network programming. Did you really think Jay ever would stick to sports during a global health crisis? Now, here's Jay Mariotti. The pandemic is nature's way of telling us that we're too dirty here on planet Earth. And this is not a short-term punishment, either. We won't suddenly wake up in September, the new target date for wishful thinkers, and return to our face-to-face conversations and warm hugs and sanitizer-free grocery stores while heading back to offices, schools, packed airports, tropical vacations, sold-out sports events and concerts, restaurants, and beaches. America is gutted until further notice, as I said, economically, spiritually, existentially, and anybody who says otherwise is guessing or lying. And the steps we have been taking, keeping a distance from other humans anywhere from six feet to six miles, ensconced at home with our families and devices in the big quarantine, each of us trying not to lose this morbid game of cooties, must continue that way for at least many months ahead. Again, months, not just weeks or days, as Trump propagates so dangerously, willing to lose enormous numbers of lives to rescue his economy when, truth be told, saving lives and saving the economy can be executed in tandem, not as an either-or. Trump can make this right and use a sweeping and fitting word, indefinitely, not April 30th, indefinitely. And he can do that this week. He can do it today. It would make everything right. Then America as a collective finally might accept what this is, a historic shutdown of life, and settle in for the spring, summer, and autumn months instead of enabling the country's morons to flout social distancing rules by gathering in large groups at parks, as I saw again over the weekend in Santa Monica, or ignoring police orders to disperse. Just fine or arrest these idiots, would you? 
Once we're allowed to come up for air in due time, or if we're allowed, the new norm becomes the existence we were headed toward anyway, kids. Staying home or close to home, communicating and working via technology, entertaining under our own roofs and not in big gatherings outside, saving our money, buying online, and protecting our loved ones. Like 9-11 and the Great Depression, we have been shell-shocked into a reordering of established ways and habits. And everybody, including the president, must realize coronavirus is uncontrollable until a vaccine is developed and distributed, which at best happens in 2021, as I've been saying. Trump must stop trying to speak his back-to-business dictum into existence, claiming he can send people in low-risk U.S. counties back to work amid the growing devastation in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, the Bay Area, Seattle, New Orleans, Detroit, and other virus epicenters. That's not exactly one nation under God indivisible, and I don't think getting workers up and running in the American hinterlands is the answer as governors in populated regions try to save their communities and marshal medical supplies. I suppose Trump can look at a U.S. map of the outbreak, take his finger and draw a line through wide swaths of corona-free or minimal territory. He could start at the Canadian border and then down through eastern Montana, the Dakotas and Wyoming, and then duck into western Nebraska and Kansas, then down through the Oklahoma Panhandle and west-central Texas to his very Mexican border. Yeah, he could do that. It's pretty clean. If he wants to resume business in those places, whatever businesses are there, I'm sure the tumbleweeds will enjoy the company. But come on, the virus will be hitting rural America at some point, and perhaps harder. It took much too long, a mistake history will remember as a disastrous and deadly pause, for Trump to acknowledge the coronavirus as an invisible enemy. Now that he's finally doing that, he is calling himself a wartime leader, which means, in its rawest form, that Trump views this crisis as a sports event, with Trump as the coach in the bunker, recalling that he never would have run for president. I'll never forget this. Had the National Football League approved his 2014 bid to purchase the Buffalo Bills. If the NFL says yes to Trump, he is not the president right now. Consider that Trump, and I needed to sit down upon hearing this, actually phoned Alex Rodriguez, seeking his advice about the virus response. What this says is mind-boggling. After ignoring the CDC, Trump calls A-Rod whose stunning U-turn from pariah to prince is just about as surreal as the current situation itself in the world. Recalling Rodriguez as a steroids juicer who twice cheated and then twice lied about it, what was he going to tell Trump? That testing isn't the answer? When Trump is using A-Rod as an advisor, he obviously is not of the mindset to understand the chilling reality ahead. If Trump moves forward with his mad rush to American normalcy in May, well, any let up in the current stay home and distancing restrictions might produce a rash of infections. That's not going to change. That overwhelms the healthcare system and kills large numbers of people. And there's this. Why would people necessarily go back to work when they're getting impressive unemployment packages from the government? No, this is not the time for baseless hope and political agendas. 
if we're going to realistically knock down the coronavirus and begin to flatten that curve, we had better accept estimates from the infectious disease experts, including Trump's, that this current lockdown could last the rest of the calendar year, if not longer, and that a vaccine likely will not be ready for mass use until deep into 2021 next year. America might be better off completely shut down all 50 states rather than engaging in this whack-a-mole game with the virus. And if the curve somehow were to flatten sooner, look at China, which has sent people back to work only to discover that citizens remain scared to resume any sort of normal life. Our citizens would be scared, too. What must be established is what scientists are calling a herd immunity. If enough tests are administered and enough infected people heal to where, say, 60 to 80 percent of the U.S. population is resistant to COVID-19, then that majority blocks the virus from spreading from person to person. As the thinking goes, that immunity could protect another person for, say, 12 months or so when a vaccine might be about ready. And then maybe Americans can remove the masks and get on with life. But think about that. Months many months at the minimum. If we do climb from this crisis, and again, I emphasize if, I would like to think a better world does await us. Cleaner, safer, friendlier, more perspective and empathy, open spaces where we can walk and breathe, work primarily done out of home, less traffic creating cleaner air, reduced frenzy, improved morals and ethics. But we must heed the lessons of our current hazmat lockdown, our house arrest bubble, to even think about a promising new day ahead. And rushing back to normal is a historically bad idea, especially when there is no more normal. As I've said all along, even before the Rudy Gobert flashpoint that shut down America's fun and games, The delusional lords of sports would like to think they're operating in some sort of hermetically sealed bubble during this global pandemic. Never mind that untold numbers of athletes have the coronavirus, many more than have tested positive, and that this crisis has hit home in all walks of sporting life. Knicks owner James Dolan tested positive, and please, no insults, no humor, as did ESPN's Doris Burke. The Lords are hoping and praying, even still, that their $160 billion industry is simply on pause, refusing to accept that sports is crashing and burning and might never be the same, likely in for a complete and soul-crushing reckoning that includes, I don't know, few fans at games, if any, and a vanishing of corporate support if a recession slips into a depression, very possible. It sounds like arrogance, but it's actually desperation and fear, all wrapped around a legal clause known as force majeure, or act of God, language that could conceivably bring down sports as we know it if the prominent professional leagues and college conferences no longer can deliver inventory. That would be games, playoffs, entire seasons, to the TV networks that have paid billions for rights. It's real simple. If a catastrophic world event causes a mass cancellation of games, then the networks recoup the money and sports is screwed. It explains why the NBA and Major League Baseball, the 
two behemoths most vulnerable right now, continue to march forward through a human massacre and formulate plans for resuming seasons until the crisis is under control. Never mind that the crisis might never be under control or might not be under control until many sports seasons are lost. Even without fans in the stands, the NBA and MLB are willing to play in studio settings to protect their TV contracts. And face it, they're going to help the networks that are fading as well without live sports to air and talk about. Of course, everybody is irresponsibly failing to recognize the most obvious issue here, the safety of athletes and officials, especially basketball players who drip sweat and breathe on each other in a league that has had at least 10 positive tests among players and likely has many more infected players. (laughs) Of course, we don't know the extent of the NBA outbreak. The league actually has discussed with the Players Association the idea of a centralized location so teams could live, work out, eat, and eventually play games in a bubble at, say, a Vegas casino property or down in the Bahamas or at a college campus in the Midwest where the virus has had little impact. If these people lost their minds, are the owners that freaked out about losing a large chunk of their $9 billion in revenue this season, which will happen if the postseason is canceled, that they would ignore the public safety problem? Social distancing is going to be with us, I repeat, until a vaccine is developed and distributed or until 60 to 80% of the U.S. population is resistant to COVID-19, whichever comes first. And that goes for athletes in all sporting competitions. Think about football, you know, tackling and sweating on each other every minute of every game. Think about baseball, guy gets a base hit, dripping sweat at first base. You got a first baseman, an ump, a coach at first base you got a collision at home plate sweat everywhere (laughs) every sport hockey sweat everywhere maybe not golf but the golfers don't want to be in this either safety must be priority one priorities two through ten and with the cdc banning gatherings of 50 plus people at least into may nationwide and probably longer How would the NBA even play studio games with fewer than 50 on site? Think about it. Even if reduced to two coaches and one broadcaster, (laughs) put Mike Breen in there, you still have two full teams of players, referees, support staff, timekeepers, TV camera operators, technicians, security people. Please just stop the lunacy. You cannot resume play in any league until the risk of spreading the virus in those games is reduced to zero. And I mean zero. And if you don't believe me, ask LeBron James, who appeared on a podcast with former teammate Richard Jefferson. So so what happens? I mean, what happens with a guy who's tested positive for Corona and you're out there on the floor with him and it's a loose ball? Like This this, is what's going to happen, Bob. What they're going to do is, why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? This is what they're gonna do. They're gonna take all the players, kind of like how like you're on the road during the postseason, and they're going to put all of you guys in rooms and not let you leave, just to make sure that like nobody else gets infected by somebody else that doesn't spread. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, 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 I ain't going for somebody that. Somebody gotta touch the food. Somebody gotta touch your food. 
Right. Yeah. I'm not going for that. The Australian Basketball League tried to play its finals with no fans, but the players shut it down midway through the series. Rightfully concerned about spreading the virus, family members had it. Makes sense. And the Chinese Basketball Association, which shut down in January, tried to resume this first week of April. That didn't work. And now they'll be lucky to restart in June. Meanwhile, NBA executives, including Commissioner Adam Silver, have accepted 20% salary cuts. What does this all mean? It means the drop-dead date for the NBA and the NHL is, what, July? Even then, it would be a quick Round robin of a postseason? Players are out of shape? Really? Just so they can recoup their money? No. So can we just stop the nonsensical hope from the NBA, the NHL? Baseball's situation might be more dire as a troubled sport veering toward a labor impasse amid cheating scandals and connectivity issues with bored fans. At stake are deals with regional TV networks that provide stability, hell, <laughs> stinking riches to all franchises in baseball. $200 million per year to the L.A. Dodgers and up to $60 million annually for most teams. If those networks don't get a minimum number of live games, yeah, they want compensation in return, which explains why MLB and the Players Union agreed to stipulations that must be met before playing the 2020 season. I have no idea why they're even talking about it, but this is how desperate they are to come back. First of all, bans of mass gatherings no longer could be in effect, obviously. It's absurd to even think about that right now in New York, L.A., Chicago, the Bay Area, other major league markets, Seattle, hit hard by the virus. Also, medical experts must determine there would be no health risks for the players, staff, fans. Obviously, that could be a year or more down the road, but they're establishing this now. Talk about wishful thinking, delusional thinking. They also have discussed playing in empty ballparks, but honestly, with TV ratings in free fall in baseball before the pandemic, who would watch? And wouldn't that further push baseball into a death spiral? Somebody hits a home run? No fans in the stands? What, we're going to pipe in fake noise? (sighs) (sighs) That would be frightening. At least the owners reached a deal where players will receive a full year of service time if the entire season is canceled, which means Mookie Betts becomes a free agent and might never play for the Dodgers. And players agreed to accept 4% of their 2020 salaries if the season is canceled. So they've talked about that. But baseball, basketball, hockey, most sports, the American financial crisis means the golden goose in sports is dead and those monstrously inflated price points are no more. Of the major sports, only the NFL could survive without fans in the stands. Pro football, even amid a crisis, will remain catnip for the TV networks and the streaming companies, which will continue to spend untold riches in broadcast fees as TV numbers stay high, even in a crisis, among football lovers and gamblers. Yep, the NFL could go without fans in the stands. But Commissioner Roger Goodell looked out of touch, not surprising, when he held firm about holding the NFL draft in April, then warned team executives not to criticize him writing the poor baby writing quote 
public discussion of issues relating to the draft serves no useful purpose and is grounds for disciplinary action. Roger Goodell, unquote. He is doing this, of course, to appease those TV networks, ABC, ESPN, Fox, NFL Network, all of which need something to put on the air for advertisers. And it's real embarrassing and tone deaf amid a global pandemic, a one percenter commissioner prioritizing his one percenter owners and the one percenter TV partners when people all over the world are dying in droves. And you know why he's doing it, because the TV negotiations are coming up because the collective bargaining agreement with the union is finished and they're going to pay up even amid this crisis, an all time crisis. All of these networks and streaming companies are going to go to the table and say, here, Roger, here are our billions. Take it. Why not donate that to the coronavirus? All of you, Jimmy Pitaro, John Skipper, Eric Shanks, all of you people, Rupert Murdoch, all of you donate to the coronavirus. No, you're going to donate to the National Football League so you can air the draft. You can air games in September without fans in the stands so you can recoup that money. And the advertisers will pay. The advertisers don't care that people aren't in the stands. They just want the games. The gamblers want the games. The fans want the games. The NFL will go on, and they're going to pay stinking amounts of money to double the current broadcasting fees, which kind of makes me absolutely nauseous. This does, too. Goodell says the American public needs his draft. (laughs) No, Roger, your owners and TV partners need the draft. What America needs is, as I said, I don't know, a billion-dollar coronavirus relief donation from the league. TV partners like billions, three billion, five billion to the coronavirus. Save the world. That would be your legacy contribution to the world you even think they've thought about this? I will give you a little bit here, yeah. A Mariotti aside, but maybe the most important Mariotti aside I've ever done. How awkward. Teams calling in their picks from isolation while players are isolated, and Goodell is isolated. <laughs> Joe Burrow coming from Southeast Ohio, but he's got to be on Zoom or Skype because you can't let the camera people into his house. So, <laughs> so... Yeah, thanks, Cincinnati Bengals, for picking me. And then it goes out. And I don't even know if Mike Brown in Cincinnati knows what Skype is. So is this even possible? What a th- Don't do this. And there are many reasons not to do this. Consider the multi-million dollar mistakes teams could make because they haven't been allowed close-up interviews with the players during this crisis. If you're Miami at number five, don't you want your doctors inspecting Tua Tungavailoa's hip? And might some GMs and scouts be fired because of Goodell's selfishness? Think about it. They didn't have a chance to really get an up-close-and-personal look at an offensive tackle, and the guy's a bust, or Tua gets hurt or something, or Justin Herbert's a bust at number six with the Chargers, and then they fire the GM, and the GM's going to say, well, Goodell should not have had the draft. I didn't have enough time to inspect this player, see how selfish all of this is across the board. Then you have college football. Haven't even talked about college football yet. Unlike the NFL, games are played on campuses where student life already has transformed dramatically. No more living and going to classes in confined areas. 
kids love to assemble in groups on campuses or in their dorms. Well, that's all gone. I mean, how do they smoke their bongs, uh, you know, six feet away? I, I, I guess. Hey, Mariotti aside, that, they still still even smoke bongs. Chris can fill us in on that. I don't, I don't even know. All right. Anyway, back to the show here. Say, hey, I'm affected by this virus in bizarre ways as well. The kids must be protected, and sitting in a football stadium or basketball arena will take on dramatically lessened importance. Already after the cancellation of March Madness, the NCAA has slashed its distribution to Division One conferences to $225 million. That's down from $600 million to be distributed among dozens of schools. Nobody's crying poor here, but that's dramatic. And college basketball, a corrupt mess as it is, facing its own reckoning. I have to wonder this. When these commissioners and owners were back in college, were they hold up in a fraternity house the day the history professor addressed the Spanish flu, which claimed it tens of millions of lives just about 100 years ago? Have they not read how Italy's catastrophic coronavirus spread is linked to a Champions League soccer match in Milan, now called Game Zero, back on February the 19th, not that long ago, five, six weeks ago? Or does Mark Cuban, the ultimate frat boy, still think the NBA can return in May? Look, sports needs to be realistic about what's going on in the world. That world has stopped, and sports should stop too. It's an industry of hubris filled with people who think they're bigger than the coronavirus. That's what wealth, greed, and adulation will do. Welcome to the real world, gents. You've been busted. And a quick comment involving my profession, sports media. The best compliment one columnist can issue to another is this. Damn, I wish I'd written that column. Or, man, I never could have pulled off that column. As a daily reader of the LA Times sports section, I say that often about Bill Plaschke. And at a time when sports columnists are fading out, giving way to storytellers and daily beat reporting as struggling media companies climb into business bed with leagues and franchises... Plasky continues to be the full package, holding the $160 billion sports industry accountable with hard opinion, while also telling stories with a precious touch, such as last week when he reached out to Vin Scully to ease the current anxieties of Angelinos, if only a bit. Plasky was just named best sports columnist in America by his peers. I may have kicked his ass on Around the Horn, and that's true, But when it comes to the complete column repertoire, he's kicking my ass and everybody else's. Now it's time for the buzz, our deep dive into sports and life. Chris joins the program. Chris, we are so guarded in quarantine here in L.A., the two of us couldn't even have our weekend meeting. The freeway's eerily empty. Rodeo Drive storekeepers removing merchandise in fear of looting. And L.A. braced for the worst as coronavirus deaths and cases surge. It's like a deadly game of hide-and-seek or avoiding the whack-a-mole. What are your observations, Chris, as you try to stay safe? Well, Jay, I got really excited yesterday when I was driving to Trader Joe's and the market. And I'm very cautious now. I'm very lucky, and I don't know if I told this story. I've told this story to people so many times that I don't remember if I did it on the podcast. But I happened to buy 
a huge pack of Clorox wipes about two months ago and a huge bottle of hand sanitizer one day at Home Depot. And I don't know why it struck me. I thought, oh, well, you know, I like to wipe down my office every morning when I can. And usually I just use alcohol and paper towels. But I thought, well, this is just easier. And I had a couple and I thought, oh, I'll have one in my car, too. And you just never know. Just nice to be, uh, you know, cautious. And I'm always cautious about getting sick, the regular flu, because a lot of times the regular flu uh, turns into strep throat for me. So I try to avoid that because obviously I voice a lot of things in my work and business and being sick is no good. Anyway, so I happen to have those things. And I'm very cautious on now wiping down my phone, my keys, my door handles, my steering wheel, everything. The minute I go in and out of a store um, and then I wipe everything down before I bring it in my house. So. As I was driving by, though, I noticed that the driving range where you hit into, it's called Islands in, in Anaheim, you hit into water. It was open, and I got really excited, and I was like, wow, maybe I'll go hit some balls. And then I thought, nah, it's not really worth it, is it? I mean, maybe during the week when it's a little less busy, because it looked packed, that I'll go. And then I kind of thought to myself, well, I don't really want to touch anything. I mean, I don't mind touching my clubs and stuff, because they haven't been touched for weeks as, as of right now. So... That's how I'm dealing with things. Thinking, oh, excitement, Jay, that I could go hit golf balls and then realizing, no. Um, but yeah, stay safe. Try to stay safe as best you can. Obviously, if you have to go shopping, there's delivery services, but I'm going out. Uh, I try to go out early in the morning. Uh, and then my uh, my family is, my parents are down the street from me and they're, I, I've gone shopping for them a couple of times. They've had a lot of stuff delivered. My uncle is helping me deliver a lot of stuff to senior citizens in our neighborhood. So he will go out shopping and pick up essentials for people. And we, uh, we wear a lot of gloves and we have a lot of masks, a lot of surgical masks, a lot of gloves in, this, uh, in, in the house. So we, uh, we're prepared to help people and help everybody get through this. And that's really the key, right? But try to stay safe as best we can and try to stay positive, Jay. And I know you don't like to be one for positivity, but I am. And, Chris, you were among the younger folks who initially weren't buying into the magnitude of the outbreak. Has your take changed? Have you started to realize that life never will be the same? Well, I don't know. Again, you like to be dramatic. I don't know if life will never be the same. Here's what I do think will be lost. I think that handshake's going to be lost. Can you imagine shaking somebody's hand? And, again, it's a generational thing. My generation will, for me, I know that the once, once it's okay to hoard things, I could see myself having a closet full of supplies that my mindset, my generation's mindset will change from from what they're now calling Gen C, I guess, or the generations before me uh, or after me, I should say. So I think that'll change. I, I think, listen, eventually we are going to have a vaccine. Eventually we are going to be able to be in crowds again. It will feel different. It will. It feels different now. It feels different now when you when you realize, oh, uh, you know, you're you're all of a sudden in a store, and you realize that you're you're in a an aisle, and everyone in the aisle sort of dawns on them at the same time that we all shouldn't be in the aisle. So people trying to move around, they'll give you a half half hearted smile. Everyone's nervous. The, things are going to come back. Did I downplay what was going on in the world? No, I did think that our country would do a better job of identifying where the regions were happening and the breakouts and containing them. I was wrong, so that's not good. And I don't blame that on President Trump, because I think, as you've pointed out weeks ago on this podcast, that that would have happened to any president. So hopefully in the future, when these things happen, we will be able to have our arms around it and move a little bit quicker, realizing we don't want to crash the economy and bring everything to a halt every season when these things happen. 
And Chris, do you think President Trump finally is starting to realize the end is not near extending social distancing, at least through the end of April? Well, I think he was under tremendous amounts of pressure, good pressure from the medical community that Easter was a little ambitious, especially because, uh, you know, you can't we saw I read the story actually last night about the the church group, the choir group in the state of Washington, which Washington has obviously been hit hard about this, that gathered at home. But one person was sick and obviously they're a choir. And so you can't make people feel that it's okay to go to church, unfortunately, on Easter Sunday, which is tragic for so many, myself and my family included. But you watch worship services online or on TV, there's plenty of them, or you read the Bible at home, whatever you need to do, because ultimately telling people Easter Sunday is okay, while it was giving people hope, the thought of millions of people gathering in churches, because and many of them would do it because they thought the federal government said it was okay, and President Trump said it was okay to do it, that is devastating. That's not smart. That's just asking for you know, for more people to die or get sick for no reason. So I think he he realized he needed to do it. I hope he realizes that this is very, very serious. And I think he does. And I think he is one that likes to put the bravado out for the media. I think he likes to give them chum. I think he likes all that. But I do believe he's listening to the people that are smart. And I think he knows that. Because again, he had to figure something out to how to get to the Oval Office at some point, right? So we got to give hope. And, and this is what I remind people, whether you like him or you, you hate him, and we know there's a lot of people that hate him, especially where we live, Jay, you got to believe in him right now. And you need him because November's a long way away. March feels like, I mean, my mother's birthday was March 2nd. It's March 30th. And that feels like it was a year ago at this point. And the reason I reference that is because we had a birthday celebration. And that seems like so long ago. So November's far away where he might be elected out of office. We need him to succeed, Jay, for the good of the country and for the good of mankind at this point. And now a final Mariotti commentary too hot for ESPN, too smart for the internet, and too chill for political activism. Take it away, Jay. In a Gallup poll, Americans were asked this. Do they approve or disapprove of the way various U.S. leaders and institutions have performed amid the coronavirus outbreak? And generally, the results have been favorable, but not favorable regarding guess who? The news media, hospitals, Congress, state governments, employers, and even President Trump and Vice President Pence all fared better than the media with only a 42% approval rate. Hell, Stefan Marbury, the former NBA pariah, is considered a national hero for lending his efforts to have masks and other medical supplies shipped to the U.S. from China, where he became a basketball legend and now coaches a team in the Chinese Basketball Association. This really should be a time for the ailing news business to thrive, showcasing great journalism amid a crisis. Instead, public trust continues to erode, and local newspapers, stripped of desperately needed ad revenue by the coronavirus, are ghosts that soon will fade away. Trump has succeeded in rallying his supporters with his periodic takedowns of reporters who don't ask Trump-friendly questions, such as Paula Reed of CBS. I was 
Mr. President, you tweeted earlier linking the closing of the country to your election success uh, in, in November. Is this Easter timeline based on your political interests? What do you because mean by election success? You, you tweeted, you said that the media wants the country to remain closed to hurt your no, odds no, of being reelected. Yeah, no, the media would like to see me do poorly in the election. Sir, I think, sir I think, lawmakers and economists on both sides of the aisle have said that reopening the country by Easter is not a good idea. What is that plan based on? Just so you understand. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. I think there are certain people that would like it not to open so quickly. I think there are certain people that would like it to do financially poorly because they think that would be very good as far as defeating me at the polls. And I don't know if that's so, but I do think it's so that a lot of that there are people in your profession that would like that to happen. But your own I medical think it's experts clear, did not endorse that plan I think yesterday. it's very clear that there are people in your profession that write fake news. You do. She does. There are people in your profession that write fake news. And the New York Times and Washington Post, despite their precise coverage of the outbreak, continue to brainwash readers by inserting their relentless Trump bashing within the coverage, still trying to rub them out of office with an avalanche of criticism instead of letting the readers decide. I don't think Joe Biden would be any better. Again, a disclaimer. I'm a neutralist politically on this podcast. <laughs> Do you really think Biden would be faring any better? Anybody? You may have your favorites. I don't think this should be about Trump. I will tell you, as you know, when he's screwing up, I've done it this entire month, and I'll continue to do it. But the Times and the Post, they have done it every single day for years, wearing out their readership. There are positives to the Trump presidency. And if he ends up winning here, they're all going to look terrible. I don't know if he's going to win here. I don't know how much he will have had to do with it if he does win. But the jury is still out on Trump, and you wouldn't know that reading the Times in the Post. They think he's already convicted and gone and should be sent away forever. That would be a Mariotti aside. Meanwhile, one reason younger people haven't grasped the enormity and danger of this crisis is the way they receive news through social media, Facebook, YouTube, whatever. If they read sites that say coronavirus only impacts older people when the data has showed that about 50% of those hospitalized are between 18 and 50 and that younger people have died from the virus, no wonder the kids are still partying in large groups. So I applaud Steph Curry in maybe the most important moment of his transcendent sports career for reaching out to Dr. Anthony Fauci and asking the questions that might resonate within younger America because a 30-something sports hero is doing the asking. I'll start with a pretty simple one, I think, but just in terms of, you know, how is COVID-19 uh, different from the flu in terms of, you know, how it you know, interacts with the body and just how it spreads? Well, it's similar in some respects, Steph, in that it's a respiratory illness that's transmitted by the respiratory route. Uh, it gives a, 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 a degree of pathology that's mostly pneumonia. Um, the reason it's different is that it's very, very much more transmissible than flu. And more importantly, it's significantly more serious. Let me give you some very quick numbers. Okay. Overall mortality of seasonal flu that you and I confront every year is about 0.1%. The overall mortality of coronavirus is about 1%. So 
Sometimes, like in China, it was up to 2 to 3%, which means it's at least 10 times more serious than the typical influenza. So when people kind of compare it, in some respects it has some similarities, but it's really, really different in its degree of seriousness. Got it? The coronavirus is not the flu. Then Curry asked this. My question is, like, what needs to happen in terms of, you know, the numbers or what metric are you looking at to be able to then determine uh, at mass that, you know, large gatherings, sporting events, those type of things are okay to, you know, revisit as, as not a threat to uh, continue, you know, the spread of the virus? That's a great question, Steph, and, and that's what we deal with on a daily basis when we sit down in the situation room with the White House every day to go over that. What you need is you need to see the, the trajectory of the curve start to come down. We've seen that in China. They went up and down. They're starting to get back to some normal life. They've got to be careful they don't reintroduce the virus into China. But they're on the other end of the curve. Korea is doing that. They're starting to come back down. Europe, particularly Italy, is in a terrible situation. They're still going way up. The United States is a big country. We have so many different regions, like New York City right now is having a terrible time, and yet there are places in the country that are doing really quite well. You could probably identify people, contact trace, and get them out of circulation. Whereas in New York City, it's doing what's called mitigation, trying to spread, as, trying to prevent as best you can the spread. So in direct answer to your question, we can start thinking about getting back to some degree of normality when the country as a whole is turn that corner and start coming down. Then you could pinpoint cases much more easily than getting overwhelmed by cases, which is what's going on in New York City. See how simple that was? President Trump and the White House media corps should be taking notes. That's our show for our producer and editor, Chris. I am Jay, reminding you to never, ever let anybody mute you in life. Thanks to the late Mac Miller for his music in our open and we end with the troubadour Don Henley musing about the clueless and oblivious amid a crisis. Cue it. They're picking up the prisoners and putting them in a pen. And all she wants to do is dance, dance. Rebels been rebels since I don't know when. And all she wants to do is dance. Molotov cocktail, the local. Government. Burn.